Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the story of an 11-year-old biracial boy detective uh, who is an inventor of robots, and that comes in handy since he's going to be fighting giant robot bees with his cousin, Ellicott Skullworth. Uh, it's a mix between Batman and Sherlock Holmes and all the comic books I've ever read. Um, if you're curious about that, the first book, Medica Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, is available as an audiobook, a paperback, and the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, once you're hooked, the sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, is also available. Uh, no spoilers, but there's going to be Alligator People, and Banneker and Ellicott Skullworth are fighting them. It's going to be exciting. Uh, and there is an as-of-yet-to-be-revealed third novel coming soon. Uh, under the super-secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some horror novels for older readers, such as the young adult novel, Altogether Now, A Zombie Story. Uh, if you like The Walking Dead, if you like your zombies grim, if you like your protagonist desperate uh, but unemotional, then Altogether Now, A Zombie Story is for you. Once you're hooked in that universe, you can also check out All Right Now, A Short Zombie Story. Uh, or The Book of David, which is a five-volume serial horror novel in the style of Stephen King. Uh, it's about an atheist who buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. Uh, so you know right away if you're the sort of person that appeals to or not. If you're at least curious, you can check out the first part of five. There's five chapters. The first chapter, The Book of David, chapter one by Robert Kent, not Rob, is available to download as an ebook. For free, whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever ebooks are sold. Uh, so check that out. Uh, coming up on the podcast, we will be talking with author Alicia D. Williams, plus many other wonderful folks in the near future. But we are going to be changing the thing, the way we do things just a little bit. Uh, rather than posting shows whenever willy-nilly, which is something we did when we started because these originally recorded live, uh, but I'm not doing that anymore. Uh, we're going to be doing Saturday shows only at least to the end of the year. So every Saturday you get a new show. The nice thing about that is that we should, even when my son's home from fall break, we should be able to consistently keep nice shows coming your way, uh, so long as nice authors and agents continue to agree to appear on here. Uh, which reminds me, if you yourself are an author or publishing professional and you long to be on the show, because isn't that every author or publishing professional's dream? Uh, hit me up at middlegradeninja.com. Send me an email. Don't wait for me to get in touch with you. My list of people I want to chat with is never ending. Let me know you want to move to the front of it. and Let's get you on here. It'll be a wonderful show. Uh, my guest today is literary agent Carrie Prestetto. Uh Carrie, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I am excellent. Worn out from my overly long introduction, though. <laughs> That's very impressive. Uh, Carrie, probably the best place uh, to get started is, first of all, thank you very much for, for clearing the time from your schedule to be here this afternoon. Um, if you would, just give a esteemed audience kind of an overview of your career and where you're at as of now. Sure. Um, so I am a literary agent at LVLA, as well as the audio rights director. Um, I've been with the agency for about two years at this point, and before that, I was at Prospect Agency, and then before that, at Writer's House. So what has um, three different literary agents, uh, agencies uh, so far, what has that experience taught you about different agencies and what, how has each of those experiences kind of informed your role as a literary agent uh, currently? 
Well, um, and I have been very different. So I'm, I'm sure that pretty much everyone listening to this knows what Writer's House is. Um, it is a huge, you know, wonderful, wonderful agency. Um, but it is, there are a lot of agents. Um, so it does have a slightly more corporate feel to it. Um, prospect agency where I went afterwards was based in New Jersey. And it was about six agents at the time. So it had a much more relaxed feel. It was also very autonomous um, because I, thankfully, was not going out to New Jersey every single day. So I was doing a lot of work from home. Um, and now that I'm at Laura Dale, it's also a small agency, but it's in the city. We also share office space with um, Liza Dawson and Nancy Yost. So it has a much more um, collaborative feel. It's really nice to be able to be in the office surrounded by other agents all the time and to be able to ask questions and have a back and forth instead of you know, just talking to myself about ideas. So they're not uh, staring at you. What have you got going on? You're kind of trying to sneak peeks at them. It's there, There's no adversity there. Everybody's friends and trying to collaborate. You would think, um, but we're all just like trying to plow through our own work. So, so when, uh, when did you decide that you wanted to be a literary agent? Probably my sophomore summer of college, because that was when I actually interned at Writer's House. Um, I'd been looking for an internship to do, and a friend had recommended I give this a shot. Um, and I, I had no idea what a literary agent was before that. And I think that's probably true for most people. I think that in the publishing industry, editors are really the, the front-facing people. Um, so I didn't really know what an agent was. I thought it was probably someone who just like read all the time, and that was it. Um, which was very appealing to me. But then when I interned at Writer's House, I just really fell in love and I kind of knew that that was what I wanted to be going forward. And were you always a passionate reader from a young age or were you a reluctant reader that turned around at some point? No, I've been a passionate reader. Mom is um, a birthday teacher, so I was taught to read early. <laughs> and always How are we talking? I'm sorry, what, what age? Oh, no, always got lots of books for Christmas, too. <laughs> oh, perfect. They raised you right. <laughs> so um, what were you passionate about when you first started reading, and how has that changed? What are you passionate about reading now? Um, so I don't, I don't think that it's really about, like, what I am passionate about reading in terms of what's changed from, from start to now. Um, I think it's more about what I've decided to look. So when I first started agenting, what I was passionate about was getting started, right? I really wanted to just start working with clients, start getting projects to send out. Um, and so I was much more hands-on. I used to do line edits every single time someone sent me a revision of something. Um, and I, I obviously, I don't have the time to do that anymore. So when I'm looking for projects now, I think um, rather than just to get as many things as I can and as many deals as I can, I'm looking for stuff that really just blows me away. Um, so that that often means sometimes when I'm looking at queries, I'll see projects that I think are great and that I could totally see being published and I think should be published. But because I'm not head over heels in love, it's not something that's the right match for me anymore. Gotcha. So for all of those uh, desperate writers listening who, who want to reach out to you, want to get in touch, uh, what's the sort of project that you're likely to fall head over heels in love with? Um, maybe probably a really good answer, but it's not so much um, it's not so much a genre or a topic or a premise so much as just 
something that I haven't really seen before and with really fantastic voicey writing and great characters. Um, you know, sometimes I, I think that that's also probably what everyone says. So, which is why it's a little annoying because, you know, everybody wants great voice and great characters. Um, but I'm also willing to be surprised in genres that I don't necessarily think that I like. Um, so in the past, I've always said that I'm not a huge epic sci-fi person, but I read something a couple years ago um, that I ended up finding where the voice just blew me away. It was just so fantastic. I felt like I was living in that world. I hadn't really read anything like it before. And so I made the exception. And that that's kind of my standard now, as opposed to specific genres, if that makes sense. Is that a book that's available where we can go get it yet, or is it still in development somewhere? It is still in development. Gotcha. So as soon as it becomes available, come back, tell us what it is, so we can all read it and fall in love as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've uh, been uh, stalking your uh, manuscript wish list just a little bit, uh, and I'm sure that anybody that's uh, listening to this, just by virtue of the fact that they listen to this podcast, uh, already head and shoulders above the other folks that are writing queries, uh, so that they know to, to check you out, check out your interests, make sure that they're going to be bringing you something that would be of interest to you, and so they'll be doing the same thing. Uh, but I did see that you're, for one, looking for nonfiction only for picture books right now. Is that still true? That is correct. So why uh, why nonfiction only? It's because I don't really have a lot of experience in picture books. Um, there are some agents that do a lot of it. And actually, um, Teresa Kaitlinski is one of them. She used to be a prospect. And I would always see her um, her samples that she would send out to editors and just look at her list and think that her picture books were so adorable, but I had no idea what I would do if I would edit one. Because, you know, there's like five words per page, and if it's a fiction picture book, and it, you know, is elephant woke up and went to school, I wouldn't, I would have no suggestions for that. Um, I also don't really, I'm not the best at editing artwork, because I don't really work with illustrators on a regular basis. So with nonfiction, um, there are sort of standards that are much easier to see. You know, is it telling the story, story adequately, is it for like giving off, um, sorry, or is it sharing X, Y, and Z facts um, that in the right age range? So it's, it's easier for me to gauge nonfiction picture books than it is fiction. Not just because you can go through and say, okay, accurate, 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 100% for certain these facts app. Well, and also um, the format too. Like when, you, when you're thinking about a nonfiction picture book, whatever it's about, if it's about a biography or, um, you know, a certain kind of science or what have you, you kind of know what you're expecting in terms of storytelling. Um, whereas with fiction picture books, it's kind of the wide range. I'm just, I'm just less comfortable with it. Hopefully I will someday be a little bit more comfortable. I'm trying to push myself maybe for this year or next year. Um, but at the moment, it's still nonfiction. So what I just heard unofficially is if there is somebody listening that has an amazing fiction picture book, that maybe they could be the one that, no, that's a terrible bit of advice. Don't listen to me, esteemed audience. Stick with the <laughs> manuscript wish list. <laughs> and I saw that you're looking for fiction that hooks reluctant readers, um, uh, which is something I, I, I want to write fiction uh, that hooks reluctant readers. So what is it? that gives you some idea when you're looking at a manuscript that, oh, this might be one that will hook those readers? Well, the most important thing, I think, is the premise of the story. Um, I think a lot of times when it comes to people who aren't really interested in reading, it's because they don't think that any of the books available to them are interesting, right? Or it's stories they've read before, and it's just a lot more of the same. Um, 
I think having a really high concept cookie premise is something that can really make a reluctant reader go, oh, that sounds kind of cool. You know, I guess I guess I'll take a look at that. Um, I think one of the pitfalls in, in middle grade and in YA sometimes can be to rehash plot lines, premises, or character relationships that have already been done a lot of different times, um, especially in, in the fantasy realm, because you know the standard trope is that you know you have a hero who discovers something special about themselves and goes on a journey, and you know kind of picks up sidekicks along the way or what have you. Uh, and I think that it's important to make sure that obviously some of the tropes are universal things that will sort of affect your stories at different points. Um, but just making sure that there's something that really makes your story stand out from the pack, uh, especially because. As we all know, middle grade and YA is a very crowded market. Got you. So you get uh, a query in the inbox. Um, what's the first thing you look at? Do you read the query first, or do you go straight to the the manuscript? Oh, I read the query. Okay. So let's come back to the query and find out what's going to get past you and, and what you're interested. And first, let's talk about the uh, manuscript while we're looking to, to get past. Um, potential reluctant readers that, that might, want to, might not want to continue reading. I'm assuming if you're not wanting to continue reading, then we don't, we don't worry about the reluctant readers. <laughs> so what, uh, what are you looking for? What, how do you judge a manuscript and say, you know, five, 10 pages, whatever you've got time for before you decide that, hey, this is something I'm going to continue reading or no, the query show promise, but this isn't doing it for me? Um, writing very important. I also really like to have beginning chapters that kind of drop us right into the action right away. If it's a lot of sort of meandering about or internal thinking and nothing is really happening, I, I tend to get less engaged. Um, I like being sort of confronted with the conflict almost immediately and just getting really rushed right into the story. Um, I think also so I was talking before about voice and falling head over heels in love and how it's not necessarily genre specific for me. Um, I think another sort of facet of that is that I don't necessarily always know what I'm looking for because I haven't seen it yet. So what I am really looking for is something that's very unique, something where I'm not going to read the first chapter and be like, oh, okay, I can totally tell what's going to be happening in this book, or I can at least call it the next hundred pages. Um, so innovation is something that's really exciting for me to see in a manuscript. You know, get excited thinking, oh, I, I bet I know how, what's going to happen on 100 pages, and then you keep reading for 100 pages just to know you're right. I'm like, yay, <laughs> yay me, I'm great at this. Rejection. <laughs> no, and that's not to say also that, um, you know, some more standard stories can't be interesting. I think that if you do have a conventional plot line, then it's important to maybe have as an, a different aspect of your story that's surprising, you know, like unusual character relationships um, or things like that. I, I kind of um, I kind of think about retellings a lot when I'm talking about this. So um, if you ever see like, you know, um, a, a contemporary version of Jane Austen, I was gonna say Set in Space, but that's Alexa Dunn's novel and it's one of my colleagues, that's why I was thinking of it. Um, but the great thing with Alexa's novel actually is that it takes sort of the story of Jane Eyre, not Jane Austen, um, and turns it on turns it on its head a little bit. So it's, it's not only set in space, but the character relationships have changed. Some of the plot has changed. If you're taking a retelling and you're just basically lifting the plot and the character relationships and everything else and just putting it in a modern day setting or in space or something, it's less engaging for me and it's less engaging for readers because 
if you know, you know, the origin story, you already know everything that's going to happen. Um, and I think it's true in general when it comes to any kind of story. If it's if it's following a pattern that is predictable, um, you know, friends who end up falling in love, um, enemies who end up becoming friends, all, all the standard tips you can think of, it's important to make sure that there's something about them that is unusual or surprising in some way so that the reader isn't sort of inactive as a reading. Okay, that makes sense. Um, I mean, I'm sure at this point, all the uh, retellings of Jane Austen, Shakespeare, all that stuff, we've, we've, we've covered it no more, right? <laughs> I mean, who knows, right? But I think that was Shakespeare retelling is like a big part of my childhood in like the 90s and early 2000s. So I think that they probably had their heyday. So what, uh, and I know the, the trying to ask you to define what is a great author voice, how do I achieve one, uh, is kind of an empty quest. Uh, but I'm going to try anyway. Uh, when you're when you're looking at that first, do you, do you start with ten pages of a manuscript? How much of a manuscript? How, how how much leeway do you give a manuscript when you start first start reading to know whether or not you'd like to continue? Um, I think that this answer is probably making people kind of sad, but I can usually tell within the first couple sentences if it's a project that I'm going to keep on reading or not. Um, I know. I'm sorry. Wow. That's a bold <laughs> statement. We're definitely going to have some follow-up questions there. Writing <laughs> chapters is so important, guys. Um, no, but I mean, I'm, I'm looking for very sort of concise uh, writing with a lot of like sort of tension, action. Um, I am not a flowery description person. I'm not a rambling offsides kind of person. Um, I was going to say I'm more of the school of Ernest Hemingway, but he's a little too a little too much far on the other end of the scale for me. Um, but I I do like very commercial writing that is very active. Um, and I think because it's been, you know, a while, I've, I've gotten to sort of know what I like and been more comfortable, I think, sort of identifying that more quickly. Makes sense. And I know that... Uh... Uh, I'm uh, playing devil's advocate for all the writers listing a little bit because I know once you've been reading queries nonstop, endless queries uh, that come through, you do develop a kind of almost a preternatural sixth sense about uh, where things are going. Um, how many queries are you receiving on a I don't know daily basis, weekly basis? Uh, don't know. I think maybe a year or two ago, one of my interns actually did um, a chart. And like looked at everything monthly and, and came up with an average number, but I, I don't I don't know if it's changed or not since then. But I would say maybe um maybe like hundred or two hundred a week. A hundred to two hundred a week, and that's not counting all the things you have to read for your clients, all the things you have to read maybe to help out your agent friends. Plus, do you also have to make time still for fun reading? <laughs> no. Um, no, that's I do make time for fun reading. I just haven't done it in a while. <laughs> I snuck in uh, Stephen King's newest over the weekend, and I felt uh, like I was I was pulling something off. I was like, oh, I don't, I'm going to read a book that's not for somebody coming on the podcast, that's not for the blog, just for me. Uh, and it, it was worth it. The Institute was uh, one of his best in years. Highly recommended for anybody looking for a good read. Um, so, okay, so 200, 100 to 200 queries. Uh, let's go back to the query, and then we'll, we'll get back to these first few lines, because obviously that much every week, there's not a whole lot of pressure that, hey, if I miss out on this great deal, there'll never be another one. <laughs> There's probably another one in the inbox uh, waiting. 
Um, so let's start with the query. How, what, what, what grabs your attention in a query? How can authors hope to stand out for you? Um, well, so the best kind of queries, I think, are those that almost sort of read like back cover copy. So very concise, very to the point, um, but also, you know, with some great cliffhanger moments that leave me compelled to want to read more. Um, that's really what I'm looking for. And also just like really, you know, unique ideas. It, you know, I, I get really hooked on the premise of a story as well as the query letters. If I'm reading something, I'm like, oh, wow, this is supposed to be like a young adult crazy rich Asians. That sounds awesome. Um, you know, then I will be intrigued to sort of keep on going. Um, and it, it's a balance of those two things. I understand, you know, query letters um, and first chapters are not going to be like absolutely pitch perfect. There can be areas that need work or whatnot. And I understand that. Um, so it is a balance kind of between what you're actually writing, if that sort of is intriguing to me, and how the writing is generally sort of stacking up. Okay. So the query comes in. Are you looking for a paragraph of, hi, Carrie, I think you're the most incredible literary agent ever because I faithfully listened to every episode of the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. I heard you on there. You sounded fantastic. Are you looking for that personal connection of why you or are you skipping past that paragraph to, to see what the pitch is? Well, so I do really like getting things like that. So I think it's very um, personal, but I think that maybe as a cynical New Yorker, I am. I'm less concerned about that and more concerned about what your actual story is. Although, uh, have you been in New York to, uh, oh. to have it work its uh, cynicism magic on you? Um, not that long. <laughs> I've been in the city for, ooh, a decade? Decade. Um, That's not enough. <laughs> but I think I, I think I got the armor on before that. You, uh, you studied abroad in Oxford, right? Mm -hmm. And where did you grow up prior to that? Connecticut. I apologize. I, I realize we're all over the place. We're going back to query letters. Just, just curious <laughs> since you mentioned the New York cynicism. <laughs> um, that, that way, somebody who did faithfully listen will have one more thing to put in that uh, intro uh, paragraph. As a fellow Connecticut person, <laughs> I felt that we would connect. Um, so, okay. So that paragraph, you're, you're going to read. Do you read the first paragraph, or do you skip straight to the pitch, or do you just quickly skim that paragraph? Um, I'll just over. Okay. So is there anything that an author could put there that would turn your head, get your attention prior to the pitch? That was me. Okay. So if there's a personal connection of any kind, if one of my authors has recommended you, if I met you at a conference, um, you know, if, if we went to the same school, if there's any sort of whatnot in there, then I will keep my eye out for things like that. Gotcha. Uh, and then, okay, so the pitch comes, and how long is, a, is an acceptable pitch? Is, does it need to be down to one paragraph, or you put up with three paragraphs, ten? <laughs> um, well, I think one paragraph is a little too short. Um, somewhere in, like, the three to four range is probably optimal for me. Um, I have found, with age, that the longer something is, the denser something is, the more likely my mind is to just start to wander. Um, so I prefer things to be very to the point. So if I've got a 200,000 word novel, you're not the agent to send that one to? Um, well, no, that depends. If it's a story that needs to be 200,000 words and you have been, you know, if you have a fast moving plot and all of that, then I'm, I'm still down for it. But if you are, you know, doing a lot of like description, well, I kind of think of 
description um, as something that should be sort of scattered throughout the manuscript so that it kind of hints at things that you want the reader to understand about world building, people's emotions or whatnot. And obviously always showing description instead of telling. Um, I think that the other kind of description, which is you know a lot of adjectives, a lot of very like, vivid imagery is less my style. And I kind of think of it as sort of being almost like micromanaging the reader's imagination in a way, um, which is just not something that I like personally like. Gotcha. Uh, so brief description to the point, give me a few outstanding details so I can orientate myself within the world of the story and then move on. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. I always pick on Anne Rice, uh, but Anne Rice wrote The Witching Hour, and I swear to God, half of that novel, it's its, it's an unbelievably compelling novel, but half of it uh, is description. And I felt like by the, by the time I read it, I could have drawn a perfect <laughs> picture of the house that the witches live in and, and all the generations go through. <laughs> uh, same thing with all the vampires. I, I know just from a picture which one's which. Like, oh, yeah. Nope, but they've been well described to me. <laughs> Uh, and Anne Rice is one of those that I, I feel confident picking on. I try never to author shame. I don't pick on authors uh, that, that I think I might run into. But Anne Rice, she's big enough that she's not concerned what we're saying about her. <laughs> she's over it. I don't, maybe she listens faithfully uh, up till this episode. Now she's she's heartbroken and devastated. I'm sorry, Miss Rice. <laughs> so, okay. So as far as before we move back to those couple of lines that readers have or authors uh, have to wow you with, uh, within the query itself, uh, other than the pitch for the story, well, let's let's stick with the pitch for a minute. Um, what does a good pitch look like to you? What what gets your attention? Um, I sort of described it, what I'm looking for as being kind of like what you would see on back cover copy, and that that pretty much holds true in general for what I'm looking for. So you know, like a a very like snappy introduction, an explanation of what the conflict is, um, and then sort of like a cliffhanger-ish that's waiting for me to read more. I don't love synopses and queries. I will sometimes ask for a synopsis when I request something separately, um, but I don't really love queries that sort of wrap up everything for you right in those few paragraphs. So you're less likely to be intrigued if they explicitly state the ending? Yeah, or just, um, I don't know. There's something about a synopsis even if you know you're doing it within a couple of paragraphs, that just reads a little bit differently from a query that's kind of like following that back cover copy rule that I was talking about. Um, I think that there's something about synopses that make them just sort of like chronological outlines. Like first we did this, then we did that, finally this happened. Um, and I feel like I lose some of the sense of a person's writing sometimes when I'm reading something that reads like a synopsis or is a synopsis. Okay. Um, so I can't say like, you won't believe this amazing surprise ending. And it is, that's not going to do it for you. Do you want to know, uh, genre, age group, all that kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. No, I do Um, I think that that actually is an important thing for authors to do some research on because I've, in the past, I've gotten queries where someone just says, you know, this is my work of commercial fiction. Um, just like the broadest thing they can think of, or, you know, um, women's fiction when it's actually romance or I think that it's important to do the research and figure out what your genre is, um, in general, not just for your query letter, but also so, you know, you know, what you should be writing about, like what the market is, what other people have done in that genre recently. Um, 
But yeah, no, sorry, that, that was my very long-winded way of saying no, no. no such thing as long-winded on this show. I want to hear everything you have to say. <laughs> I do love that idea, though. I've written commercial fiction. It will be loved by readers. Everyone. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? How about uh, comparables? Do you like a couple of comparables? I do they are serving a purpose. Um, because, you know, sometimes you have a book that's, like, so weird that you can really only be, like, you know, it's Veronica Mars meets Ancient Aliens. And that gives you, like, a perfect little snapshot. Um, I think sometimes people think that they need to do it. And if it's not, if I can understand in the query, like, the gist of what this story is, I don't need comp titles on top of it to just reinforce that. Um, I would really only like to see them if there's something that you feel really needs to be included. So when you go to, we're, we're, we're going to break this down into multiple steps, but when you go to pitch the novel, um, I assume at some point you're going to use comparables to arm the editors with, right? Um, not always. Sometimes okay. query letters, sometimes they won't. It's, it's kind of the same um, metric as query letters for authors. If I feel like it's something that's really necessary in order to really give an accurate snapshot of the book, then I'll include it. Um, if I don't, I won't. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so we a paragraph introduction. Hi, Carrie. I heard you on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. We're both Oxford graduates, and I grew up in Connecticut. Freaky, right? Uh, <laughs> that's paragraph one. Uh, the next three or four paragraphs are, here's my pitch for the book. Uh, Veronica Mars meets ancient aliens. Love that pitch. If that doesn't exist yet, it needs to. Somebody write that book. That sounds great. Uh, anything else in the query that's going to catch your attention or that you'd like to see? Um, it's nonfiction and usually sort of like some sort of platform info is really important. And in general, if you have anything that, um, that ties into your book. So for instance, you have your Veronica Mars meets ancient aliens and you're that scientist on ancient aliens with crazy hair on every episode. Then I want to know that, um, you know, or you have your own detective agency, uh, anything that's relevant. If you are both Giorgio Sukolos and you have your right. own detective yeah. agency. <laughs> Giorgio, if you're listening, Carrie is your agent. Call. <laughs> Send that query immediately. Uh, what about for fiction? So if I want to turn your head and I tell you that I've got 500 Twitter followers, is that doing anything for you? No. Um, because 500 Twitter followers is like impressive for just like a person being out there, but as an author, you're not really just a person, you're a brand, right? Um, and so for a brand to have 500 Twitter followers, like not as exciting. Um, I don't think that there's like a, a standard number that wows people, but probably above like 10,000 or something like that. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I specifically picked a, a dreadful number that you shouldn't brag about. <laughs> 500 Twitter followers, keep that to yourself. <laughs> uh, but 10,000 would turn your head. Yeah, I think that made me go, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. Um, it wouldn't necessarily like turn my head, but it would definitely sort of make me stop and perk up a little bit. So certainly Which, worth mentioning. Exactly. What about, I don't know, 9,500, still worth mentioning? I'll still take it, yeah. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Uh, anything else such uh, well, I assume if you've got like a couple of fiction awards, you might want to mention that, right? Mm -hmm. um, if I've got an MFA from, I don't know, Oxford, some prestigious university, is that worth mentioning? Um, 
It is in general. It's not necessarily something that I'm looking for. Okay. Fair enough. But what if I said, Carrie, I have really large student loan bills that I need to pay. Help me. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I hear when I hear uh, MFA degree. <laughs> I will this with you. Um, now, the reason I say that is because, in general, I think that MFAs are great for helping you sort of develop your writing skills and, you know, getting, obviously, very qualified critique partners to, to look over your work and to talk to you about your work. Um, but in general, I find that MFAs focus on sort of more literary fiction writing um, and sort of, you know, creating short stories with really eloquent themes or insights or, you know, that you can compare to Foucault, which is great, you know, for literary analysis, um, but less pertinent for a traditional sort of trade publishing. Okay. <clears throat> And we're going to get back to those lines of fiction, but something else that I noticed on your manuscript uh, wish list that I wanted to ask you about uh, was you said that you uh, were looking for, you wanted authors to avoid themes and premises that are too obvious. Um, so how do you do that without writing something so subtle that, you know, only Mrs. Kent knows what I'm talking about? <laughs> um, I think it kind of goes back to what I'm talking about. Always just trying to make sure that there is some element of your work that is new, that there is something that makes it stand out on a bookshelf with everything else, you know, in the genre lined up against it. So, you know, if you're having like, for instance, a very um, Princess Diaries kind of book, right? Where someone is thrust into this new wonderful situation and thinks that she's fallen in love with somebody, but he's actually evil. And like the person that she had from her childhood is actually the one that she should be with. Um, there should be something else about it that is unique in some way or something that makes it high concept. So, and I know that term confuses a lot of people sometimes. So uh, high concept is just something, something that you can say in a sentence that makes your book sound really sort of amazing. And if your one sentence pitch for your book is, it's like Cinderella, but now it's less exciting than, you know, I guess, well, I guess Veronica Mars meets ancient aliens, right? That's super high concept. It's a really unique and individual. Um, sorry, that answer kind of? Yeah, no, I, I think that, um, yeah, you want something that, that, that stands out that we haven't seen a thousand times. Um, and high concept, basically, I, I would think almost ancient aliens with anything. <laughs> this is going to be high concept, right? Except the creation of the pyramids. That one, I think, is like a, everyone knows that. That's like okay. something we've talked about a lot. Fair enough. We, we don't want that one. I'm trying to think what would be too low. I don't know. Um, I re-examine my relationship with my mother that was impacted by ancient aliens. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> it's something. Go on. Why won't the ancient aliens let you understand me, Mom? That's <laughs> that's my picture in <laughs> So while we're while we're talking about aliens, uh, we're getting back to the query letters and manuscript evaluation. But it wouldn't be the middle grade ninja if I didn't ask you: uh, Have you ever seen a flying saucer, and do you believe in them? Well, I mentioned aliens is because like it's my dad's favorite TV show ever. Whenever I'm home, that's what we watch. So I, I, I do believe in aliens and flying saucers. I've never seen them, though, thankfully, because usually when you do, that's like when the Earth is about to blow up. So. 
So that's your first thought if you're out uh, camping sometime and you look up and there's a flying saucer, like, ah, I had so much to do. I was really enjoying life and now it's over. Uh, yeah, because they never come down as like, you know, sort of UN missionaries being like, welcome to the pool. They're always, they're always aggressive. So. Well, tell your dad that uh, I know Richard Dolan, my favorite ufologist, is on that show on a pretty regular basis. Uh, and he was kind enough to trade emails back and forth with me when I was working on the Book of David uh, and kind of give me some some ideas about how to make my flying saucers credible and really just a lot of encouragement, which was pretty amazing. So if he wanted to email, I don't know, Giorgio Sukalos with the hair, he, he might be a little bit too popular these days. But if you want to reach out to Richard Dolan or some of the other folks, you might get an email back there. They're pretty cool people. Giorgio is like on, literally on every single episode, and I wonder how he's an expert in all of these areas. You know, like alien sightings, like in ancient Mayan, you know, architecture in the pyramids, the potential of Atlantis, um, the Holy Grail. I just, I don't know. He seems a little too extensive for me. I like slightly more localized information. You gotta figure his hair takes at least two or three hours to get ready every episode, right? That's a lot of time to read while they're <laughs> guessing. <laughs> I know that that's just the way it is. He's just given up. He uses all his spare time that he used to use straightening it to read, right? <laughs> at the at the risk of uh, upsetting your your father or other uh, listeners who are passionate ancient aliens fans, I personally stopped watching the show. I still like a lot of the people that are on there, like the aforementioned Richard Dolan. Uh, but Eric Von Daniken, who wrote Chariots of the Gods, where which of course is the jumping off point for that show and a lot of other things. Um, He's a known fraudster. He he wrote lots of potentially reliable stuff, and it's certainly I think it's a it's a theory that makes as much sense to me about the creation of the universe as anything else. So sure, uh, but Eric von Däniken um, forged some artifacts, and when he was called out on it, uh, he said that sometimes when you want people to know the truth, you have to bend the rules a little bit to get the truth to them. So he, I don't know about everybody else on the show, him and maybe if you see Dr. Stephen Greer around there, that guy's for sure not credible. So those two, watch out. <laughs> Thankfully, that's necessarily fine. I think it's also like entertainment value, right? Because it's just like, it's fun to watch. Um, but I think that if you were to watch all the ancient alien episodes and like buy into every single sort of theory, it would I feel like it would kind of leave you like kind of just freaked out about life a little bit, right? Just, oh, yeah. You gotta take it with like a grain of salt. That's how you end up with a tinfoil hat. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but you're right. No, it's just as for pure entertainment, it's great, which is why when I was doing research for the book of David, I took everything. Like if it's fake, I don't care. I'm writing a fake book. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a problem. Okay, so we were talking about query letters, <laughs> manuscript evaluation. So okay, the query letters turned your head, you're hundred percent on board, you turn to the manuscript now. And you're going to give the manuscript a few lines, depending, I assume, on the description, if it was a really captivating description, maybe even a full page, right? Mm -hmm. Possibly. So what does an author have to do to win you over in the in the short amount of time that they have to do it? Uh, have, like, really great writing. <laughs> um, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm not always 100% sure what I'm looking for because I, I'm not going to know it until I see it, uh, especially because my emphasis is really on getting things that really surprise me and, you know, are innovative and whatnot. Um, so it really is having that really hooky writing, having, you know, very active writing, um, very actionable or action-ish writing. 
um, interesting characters, really strong voice. I think, or just even just wanting to really wanting to make me to read more. So if you have a really fantastic premise and the writing isn't quite there yet, or I'm seeing things about it that I want to fix, if the plot is so compelling that I just am going to gloss over all of that and keep going, that is also a big plus. So I had two spelling errors on page one, a long description to nowhere, but by God, we're opening an amazing place. You'll keep going and, and just make me do a revision later. Yeah, like if I really fantastic time, I'm really, really excited about. And also the mistakes that I see are things that I can edit. So if I if I can see the mistakes that, that I think you're making um, or things that I want to change and say, okay, I know that I would cut that and I would start this here and I would just move these things around. If, I, if there's something that I think that I can do with it, then yes, if I'm looking at it and I'm like, I am not quite sure how that would fit together, then less less so. Okay. So 100 to 200 uh, potential queries uh, a week. How? What are the most common mistakes that you're seeing that, that rule authors out immediately? Um, well, not research. So I am kind of open to any, I'm willing to be convinced um, to be in, into sort of any genre. But there are some like hard notes, like fiction picture books is something we talk about. Um, also like sort of medical and illness memoirs are just not my thing. So if people aren't doing their research on things like that, that's not a no. Um, projects that are too similar to ones I already represent. I think that's actually something that a lot of authors think is a good thing. Um, that, you know, because I rep the Storm Crow, will also be interested in another fantasy with elemental crows. Um, but in reality, like I do love this Ron Crow and I think it's a great book, but I don't want another one because I just sold that one <laughs> um, and I'm not going to be able to do it again. So I think in terms of that as well. Um, anything else that's like a automatic no? No, I mean, including the idea, right, that their writing is like on point and I'm loving it. But other, you know, I think those are the only things I can think of. Gotcha. And so take a look at your, your client list, make sure that you haven't sold anything that's that's too similar to, to what they've got. Um, are there any things that are just automatic pet peeves? Like if I start my story with, I woke up, I was a redhead in a middle grade novel and my parents were dead. Things like that, that, that immediately <laughs> turn you off. Oh, like very internal, sort of like angsty dialogue, which I think is probably a little bit more common for YA. You know, um, I'm not a huge fan of opening with things like that. Also, things where I have to play catch up, where you're talking about people and relationships that you haven't yet explained to me or even hinted at in some way. Um, because a lot of times, especially when you're starting a novel off, you can just give someone a, a very broad sketch and they'll understand exactly what you're talking about. Um, you know, like, for instance, um, sisters who don't get along. I think that's a relationship that most people, just as soon as you say that, can kind of sketch out what that looks like in their head. Um, but if I don't even have those sketches, if it's just talking about people doing things and I don't know who that person is and da -da, I just feel lost or like I'm starting in the wrong part of the story, that's that's a pet peeve of mine. Um, I don't like the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just the entire decade out. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's not like my, not a big thing for me. Um, although actually I did read um, a partial somewhat recently. It was set in the 70s and I thought I wouldn't like, but I actually did. And it, it ended up not being um, quite enough to fall in love with it, but I, I was surprised that I was okay with that. In general, setting in the 70s is like a slight tick against for me. And that's, 
it's just a personal bias thing. What is it about the 70s you think that uh, that repels you? Um, not repels, that's too strong of a word. But I think um, when I was talking about sort of like being able to call something automatically, I think a lot of times when I read stories set in the 60s or the 70s, it's always like this good suburban kid who's super naive who got drafted into Vietnam or like met somebody who was a hippie and did tons of drugs and, you know, goes through this revolution in terms of who he is. And I don't know. That's not necessarily confined to the 60s and 70s, but that's something that I see in a lot of stories that take place in that era. So it's just not my, not, not my cup of tea. I'm going to write you a fiction paper book or paperback or paperback picture book, a fiction picture book set in 1965 about somebody dying from cancer that's cured by ancient aliens. And then I've got you. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I, think I can win you over. Oh, <laughs> <attention>. Yeah. <laughs> so how many, uh, how many clients are you accepting on a yearly basis? Would you say? Um, Accepting, taking on whatever the, the right term is. No, I that's um I don't know because I, I don't I'm not really thinking in terms of years. Um it really is so I'm really almost looking for a reason to say no to something just because I, I have a fairly full list. Um I have a lot on my plate right now, and so I really want to be not forced because it's not like I'm being like dragged against my will, but almost like forced to be like, oh, this is so, this is so like wonderful and awesome. I, I have to take it. This has to be mine. Um, so, I mean, in terms of like yearly additions, that's not, I'm not sure. Maybe like, maybe ideally like one or two, but sometimes that ends up being something that I'm like, I said one or two, but I'm going to take on these two people too. Um, so it really just kind of depends. So one or two, would, we, would it be fair to say probably no more than 10? <laughs> Definitely under 10. Okay, I'm just trying to get some idea of what, what the ratio is between the 100 to 200 queries uh, per week versus under 10 clients that you're going to offer representation to for the whole year, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I, think really, I, I kind of go through a year maybe saying like, okay, I, I probably can't take on any more than like, you know, three or four people this year because I got a lot on my plate and I got to do these things. That's probably as much as I can do and still be like a functional human that has hobbies. Um, but if I come across six things that I really, really love, I'm not going to like not take on, you know, three of them. I'm going to do it and just, you know, never see my husband. <laughs> and so other than uh, being married, what, uh, what hobbies are you carving time out for? And are, is, is agenting at this point your only your your sole your sole job? Mm -hmm. Well, an uh, audio rights agency, but it's all within LDLA, so I kind of consider it the same thing. Um, other hobbies are well, I don't know, are cats hobbies? Sure. Okay, then cats. I love as anyone who follows me knows because I have way too many cat photos and things on my professional like social media profiles. Um, I like painting when I can. I like baking. Um, visiting my parents isn't a hobby, but it is something that I try and do somewhat regularly. Um, just like hanging around New York, walking around, just like being able to just like sort of relax and unwind a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I imagine you would want to do something other than read manuscripts, queries, and contracts all day, every day. <laughs> um, I think also maybe, 
don't know, maybe it's an adult thing or maybe it's just a me thing. As I've gotten older, I've become much lazier. So my hobby is doing things that are very like lazy that don't involve a lot of effort or planning. Um, you know, so sometimes people are like, oh, you know, my hobbies are like horseback riding. I would never want to go out to wherever the horses are like, and schedule training sessions and get helmets and lessons. It's too much. So the things that I like to do in my off time are things that I can sort of just do without much preparation. Get yourself a copy of Red Dead Redemption 2. You can five minutes a day, you can ride a, a, a digital horse close enough. <laughs> I have that. Actually. I have that. We have that. And then I get to watch what happens on it sometimes. That's When you get a chance, try it out. It's fun. Um, what was I going to ask you next? Oh, I was going to ask you about, um, uh, about uh, when you find that manuscript. So this less than 10 times a year, probably closer to one to two to five. Uh, you find something. It must be mine. It's amazing. It's a... Uh, a uh, fiction picture book about ancient aliens and cancer. I got to have this. Uh, what happens next? How do you evaluate an author? And at that point, when you're that in love with the manuscript, are there things that authors can do and have done that make you say, oh, wait, never mind? Um, yes, but it's not so much like a you messed up, buddy kind of thing. Um, if there's a project that I really, really love, I will schedule a call with the author to talk to them about it. Um, talk about, you know, what kind of career they're ideally looking to have, what kind of books they want to write, if they want to stay in that genre, um, you know, what they're looking for in an agent, um, you know, what their sort of expectations are, what their communication style is, what kind of feedback they're expecting, that kind of stuff. Uh, and if, if their answers to those things don't necessarily align with how I do things, then that might make me pause and say, oh, okay, maybe this isn't the perfect thing. Um, and that's something also that I think that authors should be doing as well, too, because I know sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm saying that out of the hundreds of queries I get, I only take on you know a few every year. And that sucks. And I know that. Um, and, you know, querying, and writing and revising and all of that is just a long, arduous process. Um, that sometimes when an agent says, hey, you, you're just like, oh, awesome. Hey, and you don't really think about it afterwards. But, you know, if that agent um, so, for instance, I am much more of an email person than a phone person, just because I guess I'm a millennial. Um, but I do do phone calls for, like, brainstorming sessions, stuff like that. But I tend to like to talk through big picture ideas with an author instead of saying, okay, this is what's wrong. This is how you should fix it. I like sort of talking about what's wrong and what I think might potentially move it in the right direction. I like leaving it up to the author to decide the actual sort of nitty gritties of how they're going to get that done. Um, if you are an author who likes more concrete suggestions or direction, then I might not be the best fit for you. Um, so I think if, you know, if you have a different communication style or different expectations about feedback um, or the kind of relationship you're going to have, if you have an agent that doesn't really match up with that, you're going to end up being sort of disappointed because you're not really going to be getting the experience that you wanted out of it. Um, and it goes, you know, vice versa. So if I say I don't need an agent that's going to talk to me on the phone at least an hour every night, uh, and it's going to be at every author event I ever do to hold my hand and tell me I'm good enough, that's probably not you. It's probably um, Is there any agent out there that that is? I mean, I'd have to be selling a lot of books to justify that investment of time, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
but it, it's not necessarily even just like a difference in um in attention or like amount of time spent it's like also sort of community so I am not like super formal when I do communications back and forth that's why I don't necessarily have like a structured do this do that sort of thing I like just leaving it's like open-ended suggestions um you know when I'm brainstorming with people I like to talk about sort of more meta ideas as opposed to sort of like little micro issues. Um, I leave it up to authors usually to determine what direction they want to take their career in um, because in my opinion, you know, it's, it's their career, it's their vision. I'm there to help them do something. If I think that they're making a gigantic mistake or that something is really going to just, you know, bomb and not work, I will tell them. Um, but, you know, if you are a contemporary client of mine, but you just really, really strongly feel that you want to move into YA fantasy, I would tell you right now why fantasy is a super hard sell because people bought a ton of it last year um, and now they're kind of backing away from it. But I wouldn't force you to not write that YA fantasy. Um, other agents can, um, other agents are similar or they can have a much more structured view of how they think an author's career should go. Um, so there's just, I mean, it's just, you know, sort of like being friends with someone, you know, it's, it's a similar sort of give and take. You want to see how you're similar, how you're different, how you'll mesh together what kind of working relationship you have, you'll have, um, you know, in the same way that you sort of, I, I shouldn't say choose a friend because that sounds super cheesy, um, but maybe a, a job. Yeah, no, I mean, taking on uh, five less than 10 clients per year, they, 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 it makes sense that you'd want to, I'm assuming you're keeping that number that low so that you can really focus and devote your total attention and time to them, right? So let's do that side of the coin. Um, I, I pass all the tests. I don't come off like a total psycho when we talked the first time. Um, and we agree that our styles are pretty similar. We're probably going to get along famously. Um, uh, what, uh, well, let me, two questions. Um, because before I forget, I want to ask you if my book is pretty good, not 100% there, and you don't know if the market's going to take it or not. It's a YA fantasy. So it's, kind of hard already and it's got a couple of elements that are eh, we'll see i know that they mean a lot to me but they're not maybe what the market's looking for are you willing to take me on as a client in the hopes that if this doesn't work we'll take a flyer on this and the second book that you're going to help me with a little bit will be better and, and more attuned to the market or do you have time for something like that well what i you do is ask you to turn on elements that I don't think are working in your manuscript to see if you're able to revise up to a level that you know I'm asking for. Um, I would also honestly have a frank conversation and just be, say, you know, listen, I think that you're a great writer. You know, you're great at revising. You know, we've talked. I really like your ideas for your other books. But to be honest, I am like 90% sure that I'm going to have a really, really hard time selling this. You know, if that's the case, are you fine with putting it down and doing something else that maybe isn't in the fantasy genre? Or if you really want to stay in fantasy, would you downgrade it to middle grade fantasy? Not downgrade, but, you know, um, change it to middle grade fantasy. Um, and for some authors, that answer might be no. Uh, I know that sometimes, you know, because you've invested so much in a project, it's hard to let it go and toss it or and to do something completely different. Um, and that's fine. And that's just, you know, and a moment when we know that we're not really matching up in terms of visions and directions. So anybody that's on your client list currently doesn't need to worry that they're the one that you took their project but weren't really expecting great things until they write the next one. You would have told them right up front, right? I would have told them. Um, I really like to talk to potential clients about their career goals as a whole. 
Um, you know, because sometimes I get, uh, especially in the children's world, I feel like people jump genres a lot. So I'll get a middle grade manuscript that I really, really love. But when I talk to that author, like, yeah, that was that middle grade idea that just been like really sticking in my head and, you know, reminding me of my childhood or whatever. And, but I actually really want to do YA fantasy too, like a bunch. Um, that's something that I kind of want to know beforehand so we can talk it through. Um, but when I, when I do sign people, it's because I've talked to them about their career as a whole. And I feel like that's something that I can help them with, not just like one project. Well, let's have that conversation a little bit then. Um, what are, what are reasonable career goals for a soon to be debut author? Uh, and what are you hoping, what, what sort of career are you hoping to shepherd? Well, being career goals, obviously not like New York Times bestseller and make millions of dollars because that's all of our goals. We all share that. Um, all the awards? <laughs> yes. All the awards, <laughs> money, done. Um, but when I'm talking about career goal, like what kind of career you're looking to have, um, you know, you could say, I I really love writing fantasy. I like writing middle grade and YA. So I think I'd like to do both of those things. And, you know, I'm really looking to do, you know, I don't know, stories that revolve around, like, female empowerment, especially because sometimes in fantasy, you know, the girls are always just like the damsel in distress and I don't like that. So I was thinking that maybe we would do some like sort of feminist version of, you know, popular fairy tales, which is retellings, which I wouldn't actually, oh, actually, no, I would like that one. That sounds fun. Um, you know, do you think that I can do something like that? Uh, like that would be my author brand, like female empowerment and fantasy. And then I'll be like, oh, I can get on board. Um, you know, if you're a little bit more scattered, or a little bit more scattered in terms of like, I think that maybe I'd also like to write a romance or maybe like a children's picture book. Then I'm going to get like a little lost. Let's try and focus you in a little bit here. Um, but on the other end of the scale, if you say, you know, I don't know, I haven't thought about my career. I just want to sell this book. Then I'm also going to say, okay, maybe you should step back and, and think about what happens if you don't sell this book. Um, sorry, does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, cool. No, absolutely. I'm going to... There, there's no such thing as over answer. You keep going. <laughs> I want to hear everything you have to say. Um, so if I, I come at you and I um, uh, and I do have just this one book um, and I don't have any goals uh, for a future, what what should an author ideally want? I mean, something between I want to be J.K. Rowling, when will Universal open the amusement park featuring my characters? Uh, and I want to sell five books, six books. What is a reasonable answer to that question? Well, well, I think it's a different. So when you're talking about being Jacob Rowling or selling five books, I mean, I think that it's understood that every author wants to be the most famous and best-selling that they can be. And so does your agent. Your agent doesn't want you to sell like five copies of your books. Um, I think it is more about sort of your mindset when it comes to um your mindset when it comes to how you want your career to progress how you envision being involved in that career thing um you know if you've only written one book but you haven't really thought about what you want your author brand to be per se um what i am looking to hear is that you're not just going to be stubbornly holding on to that one book and not trying other things i like hearing that you're willing to collaborate you're open to ideas um and that also you've done at least a little bit of thinking about your actual author brand marketing and publicity and, you know, what, what you can do in those arenas and not just the writing because writing is obviously incredibly important, but it's also not the only hat that authors wear. Nowadays, I'm sure 
everybody knows. I mean, every, authors are involved in marketing publicity now and promotional ideas, um, all that kind of stuff. That's important to think about. That's always my favorite comment is, I wrote the book. You do the marketing. You do the press. <laughs> <laughs> ah, my friend, if only we lived in that world. And we used to, but not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if we ever did. No, I think Charles Dickens probably got to say stuff like that. But <laughs> not a modern author. Well, I bet uh, Stephen King probably has that going even as we speak, because the title of his next book is always Stephen King's next book sold. <laughs> I'll read it. It's fine. Um, so, OK, well, let's talk a little bit about marketing and then I'm going to come back and I want to I want to come at this from what you're going to do for me, the amazing one of five authors that you have decided you absolutely have to take on because I'm great. Uh, and I, I want to do that next. But first, let's talk a little bit about marketing. What should an author expect to do? And what are the most important things an author can do to market themselves, build their brand, all that good stuff? Well, so this is how I usually talk to authors about marketing. Um, before they signed a book, I always say to sort of like, you know, do everything they can to bump up their social media presence. Um, get involved on Goodreads, you know, review books, get friends, go on Twitter, go on Instagram. You know, make as many connections as you can so that down the road when you are announcing your book, you're not just announcing it to, like, you know, your mom and your best friend. Um, Who will both buy copies, for sure. They will definitely buy copies, so you don't even need to pander to them. Um, but also, you know, interacting. I think sometimes um, sometimes authors who don't have a product to hawk, as it were, don't interact with their communities as actively because they think that they don't need to yet. But it's important to build relationships um, and do things like, you know, um, promote someone else's book, you know, help someone do a giveaway, review a book, so that when the time comes, that person will be like, oh, I want to help you too, because I remember you did all those nice things for me when my book was out. Um, if it is like a post-deal situation, what I usually have authors do is write down a list of everything that they would love to see done from their book, from like, you know, the online blog tour to like appearing on the Today Show and kind of just keep it in the back of their mind and to look also at what other authors with similar books or in their genre have done from a marketing perspective that has worked really well for them or that you think you could do for your book as well. Um, and then eventually you'll talk with your publicist at a publisher and they'll start telling you what they have on deck for you to do. And it's obviously not that entire list. Then you can go do that list and check off everything that the publisher is doing for you that you don't have to worry about and then look at what remains and see if you maybe need outside assistance with that, if it's something you can do yourself, and it's like a, a dream situation, we just gotta cross our fingers. Um, but I find that thinking about it beforehand and putting all those ideas out, even if you know some of them are, are crazy, um, helps you kind of focus and put on that, that cap a little bit more effectively. Okay. So if I'm going to go out and I'm going to hire a publicist like previous guest Megan Beatty or Claire McKinney, always got to always got to plug those episodes. Uh, both great PR people. Go back, check out their episodes. They're wonderful. Uh, I'm going to hire a publicist in addition to the house's publicist. Is that enough? Can I call it a day or do I still need to do additional things? And if so, what do I need to be doing? Uh, I mean, I'm not happy should be the more involved you are, the better. Like not everyone can be, obviously, but I think that. Um, I lost my train of thought for a second. Oh yeah, so doing your own due diligence. So not just handing something off to a third party publicist and hoping that they know what they're doing. Um, and sort of talking and strategizing. So you know, if you're in, if you're writing in middle grade or YA, um, 
Facebook advertising is probably not going to be super effective for you because young readers aren't really on Facebook. Um, you know, also cover reveals don't statistically really do anything in terms of pre-orders. Um, and obviously everything that you want to do sort of involves in getting buzzed for the book and talking about it, but also pre-orders are huge, right? So anything that you can do to get people to pre-order the book, to post daily reviews, to start, to recommend it, that's all stuff that is important in, um, in the marketing sense of things. Other things, like for instance, um, not book tours, book launch parties, um, they're fun and they're great and you should do them because you should enjoy yourself, but that's really more like a for you thing than like a marketing thing. I would have said that, but then I went to Annie Sullivan's launch party uh, a couple of weeks ago after she came on the show. Uh, she did it um, not that far from my house, and they had a for her book, Tiger Queen, free promotion. Annie, we love you. Tiger Queen, check out Annie Sullivan's book. It's really good. Uh, but she had a giant tiger cake that my son ate three pieces of, uh, and she had more people than within this Barnes & Noble than most weddings I've ever attended. I'm talking like the big TV weddings uh, that I would, I, I've never seen anything like it because I've been to a lot of book launches for my friends, and sometimes it's, oh, it's, it's all our friends are here. We're having a good time. Uh, sometimes it's nobody's here. And this is awkward. How long do I have to stand here before I can leave too? <laughs> but never anything quite like this particular book launch where I swear half of Indiana must have walked through those uh, through those doors. <laughs> Pretty impressive. So let me ask you, okay, so I've, I've got a publicist on the scene. I've got both publishers, publicists. I've hired my own. Are you at that point involved in helping me market or are you uh, working with other clients and focusing on, on the next project and getting a contract negotiated for that. So I will always have the opportunity to contact ideas off of to help if, um, you know, you aren't getting responses or getting or need help sort of like talking to people or sort of figuring things out. But it's, um, for me anyway, it ends up kind of being like a too many cooks in the kitchen situation where I, you know, I do not have a degree in communications or VR. So I can tell you what I've seen work, what I think, you know, you can do, what I've seen other people do, but I don't want to advise you to do things that your publicist, whether, you know, an in-house publishers or third party might turn around and say, no, don't do that. That's ridiculous. Why did you spend an hour putting together these bookmarks? We don't need those. Um, and, you know, the same goes for the editorial process. Once we, we got you signed and you have an editor, I will be around to bounce off ideas um, and sort of talk through any issues you think you're having or whatever, but I won't really sort of put my hands in editorially as much as I did beforehand, because again, my editorial thoughts are not the ones that now take priority. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they paid money. Listen to the, listen to the money people. Exactly. <laughs> so I know, um, well, a couple of things. Let's talk first about prior to submission. How much editing are you doing? Uh, I, obviously, you're not doing a line edit at every read any longer. Do you do a line edit at any point? Um, every while, I will. But in general, I try not to just because it's line edit, so it takes like a ton of time. Um, but the amount of revision I do also depends kind of on the state of the manuscript. Um, and also just sort of how how well things are clicking together. Um, you know, if you have like an insanely polished manuscript, then like, that's awesome. Then I don't have to do anything and we can just send it out. Congratulations to both of us. Um, you know, otherwise we'll go back and forth and talk about what's working, what's not working. I usually send editorial letters to people where I kind of like outline the big picture things that aren't, you know, quite there yet for me. 
um, do brainstorm conversations, stuff like that. But there's no, I, I don't have a, and this I think comes down with me being less rigid and formal. I don't have like a set, we will do three revisions, then we will go on submission. And if we have done four revisions, then you're gone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of, you know, when it feels ready. Gotcha. So um, if it's book two, uh, book one has just sold an amazing six-figure deal, went to auction, preemptively bought. It was amazing. Um, and it's book two time. How involved are you with book two? Are you helping me um, plan what ideas might make for the best possible book? So that's what um, Sometimes if it's next in series, then your editor will have some pretty specific thoughts about what they want to do. Um, especially if you maybe already come into it with a vague idea of what you want that sequel to be. Um, and if that's the case, I'll usually just step back. And if something sounds like, you know, really horrible, I might poke my head and be like, hey guys, just wondering, do we really want to have Nazis in this book? Um, <laughs> if, you know, the editor says, okay guys, book two, what do we got? And you have no idea, then yeah, I'll, I'll talk it through with you and maybe we'll come up with a few ideas that we can throw past the editor. But I... I do stop being the the sole point person in that situation. I'm always, you know, giving help or giving advice or giving suggestions in combination with either your editor, or your publisher, publicist, or whatever the you know the topic happens to be. Gotcha. But it's not it's not next in a sequel. Um, it's uh, the editor that did the the previous book has gone to another house. So we're. And they said, we hate you now. We're, we're never going to take another book from you, so we don't have to take them into consideration. Um, how involved are you in figuring out what the next project's going to be? And can I send you uh, chunks of my manuscript? I've written the first 50 pages. Will you read it and give me feedback to where we're going? Mm -hmm. Well, I was super involved because if our editor is gone and our publisher has said, we don't want your next book, that means that we have some thinking to do because most likely your sales haven't been awesome. And we need to figure out if it's something we can blame on the publisher or if we need to somehow pivot your brand a little bit. Um, or sort of rethink Is it pit name o'clock? But yeah, no, in that case, I would I would definitely be back to being the, the primary sort of talker to her. Okay, so what, what are the strategies for my, my sales were terrible, but I don't want my writing career to be over. Help me, Carrie. <laughs> well, so terrible sometimes you know you can say certain things like um for a lot of romance authors there were a bunch of digital imprints where it was digital only romance and i think most of them are, are shut down they're shutting down now because nobody bought anything from those platforms um and in that case you can ostensibly go to the next publisher and say listen we had this really great idea it was on you know this digital platform and we didn't have any sales and we really think that you know at your house, we could really sort of get the attention we deserve and get Lauren in the audience that she deserves or, you know, what have you. Um, if you have other books under your belt that um, either with a traditional publisher or self-published in the same genre that does have really strong sales, um, then you can sort of say, like, this is obviously a fluke because, look it, I have this other series that was like a bestseller or, like, you know, I have um, these books on Amazon that I market myself, but, you know, I, I am a pro and I do all these wonderful things and I have, you know, thousands and thousands of sales. Um, if you can't do any of those things, then you can think about maybe pivoting. Um, maybe you don't want to write in that subgenre anymore. Maybe instead of doing, you know, middle grade fantasy, you want to do middle grade contemporary. Um, if you do want to do middle grade contemporary, 
do you want to do a pen name and kind of give yourself a fresh start since it is technically a different brand? Um, or, you know, sometimes if, um, if we have a conversation, we both really think, you know what, I think that we can just sort of like white knuckle our way through this. Then maybe you will try another middle grade fantasy and just see if you can find an editor who really has a vision for it and really kind of has a good direction for it to go into. Gotcha. And then, um, oh, the question I had for you went right out of my head. So maybe it was a terrible question. I'll find a, <laughs> I'll think of a better one. Um, what, uh, what, here's a, a general question that I'm, uh, that'll cover anything I'm, I'm not smart enough to have uh, checked for. Uh, what services do you offer we haven't talked about that, that, that an author who's one of the lucky five can look forward to receiving from you? Um, so in my head, I'm just like agenting. <laughs> <laughs> the best agenting, sure. <laughs> lots, of, lots of agenting is what you'll get from me. Um, I am a pretty collaborative agent. So like I said, I like doing brainstorming calls. I like having a lot of back and forth with people. Um, I don't, like I said, do super like intense line edits, but I do do like a lot of editing in terms of like the, I can't think of the word, like the, the way the plot is going, character sort of development, um, writing all that stuff. So I, I am much more willing to do lots of back and forth on things like that than some other agents can be. Um, I'm also, so I've been told the fact that I answer emails very quickly is like a gigantic plus. Um, it's because I have a weird compulsion about unread emails in my inbox. I have to answer them and I have to check really often. To and when there's 200 of them sitting there? Yeah. Or if not, I at least need to file them in the appropriate place. Um, like I can't, like, I think my mom has like 2000 unread emails, but it's from like the past, like five years, just like emails that she just never bothered to open that she's fine letting sit there drives me nuts. The last time I was home, I tried to like clear them all to being unread. And I think it was like three hours and I got maybe like halfway done and I, I had to give up. Um, <laughs> what a good daughter you are. <laughs> she didn't care at all. That was completely. <laughs> um, but also, just you know, I'm I'm always open to talking, to hearing back and forth, um, answering questions. And I don't think I'm that scary. I think I'm pretty approachable. So you know that. And I also, um, like I said, I do actually really care about sort of the the entire career of the people that I work with. Um, so I. Actually, every year at the start of each year, I do strategy sessions with all my authors where we sort of talk about what our goals are for the coming year and how we think we might best to go about achieving them. Um, it's a good time for someone to say to me, you know, I think that I really want to have, you know, um, I really want to like pump up the marketing for my book. I know it's coming out next month, but I think I want to get, you know, these five things done for it. And we'll say, okay, well, I think that maybe the best way for us to do this is to try this or this or this. And, um, and I just take it from there. Like, you know, I think that I've been thinking about these different books that I want to write. Which one do you think should come first? Um, so, you know, a lot of planning and stuff is something that I also like to do with people because I am a big planner in general. Do you do, um, without asking a question that you can't answer, uh, which I'm bad about sometimes, um, but uh, like if I, if I have an author on here and I want to say, what's the next book about that nobody else knows about because I just read your arc? Dude, shut up. We, we can't talk about the sequel yet. <laughs> so I don't want to ask a question quite like that. But how much planning do you do uh, for your own career? Do you have like a five-year, 10-year uh, goal? Do you eventually want to own your own agency? Um, 
No. <laughs> so that one's out. I deeply, deeply respect anyone who has their own agency because they do all those business and tax things and have that knowledge, but that's not, no. Um, in terms of planning my career, I don't think that I have like a five or 10 year plan necessarily, but I definitely plan everything that like I want to get achieved like for the year. Um, and also usually what do I want, what I want to achieve for the year, um, besides like very specific goals, that's usually what like, I want to achieve every year. So my five-year plan most likely looks the same as like my one-year plan. <laughs> Continue being successful. That makes sense to me. Right. <laughs> do you, um, do you have genres that you are still yearning to work with an author in? Projects that you haven't done yet that you, you wish you could find? Yes. Um, I would really love to have more nonfiction on my list. I don't, I don't, I don't know why, but I love it. It's actually been coming something I'm reading more and more of. Um, I have a lot of stuff. Oh, keep asking for like a romance that somehow involves like a great British bake-off kind of thing. No one gives it to me. Um, I know of one, but it just got sold. <laughs> I have a friend who wrote it. Who the hell got <laughs> that instead of me? <laughs> um, actually, I can't think of them all right now because I have a horrible memory. That's another reason I plan. I have lists all over the place because my memory is shot. Um, but if you look at my MSWL, there are things that I've asked for for a really long time that no one's given to me. So if you have them, like, let me know. Um, Oh, did you ever watch, uh, I think it's only one season so far, and I hope it hasn't been canceled. Frankenstein with Sean Bean? I want to. It's on my on my never-ending list of TV shows to get to. So good. I want something that, like, kind of has that vibe to it. Um, so I guess... Did Sean Bean survive the whole season? Spoiler. He's there for the whole season. Okay. <laughs> that was the best way I could think of to do that. Um... But yeah, something with that maybe sort of like dark, noiry, horror-ish kind of vibe. I actually, I think, oh, I remember. Something else I've always been asking for is a YA horror that has like a Slender Man-esque kind of thing going on. Because I find that whole thing fascinating. Um, you know, are those girls insane? Do they actually believe the Slender Man is real? How did that come up in like their lives? Um, I'm a sucker for cults also. It's like a lot of really weird, fringy things. Um, Very cool. Thank you. Just horror in general, you think? Or is it has to specifically be like a Slender Man type deal? Um, I think I'm more into like psychological horror as opposed to just like, you know, zombies running around and eating people. Although I actually fairly regularly have like zombie apocalypse dreams and I always do really well in them and I'm not sure what that means. Um... Quite confident in your abilities to survive the zombie apocalypse. That's a bonus Which for any authors crazy. listening that wants you as an agent. I like you're know. in New York with Carrie one day, the zombie apocalypse breaks out, you're in good hands. You're gonna be all right. I don't think that's reality. I don't know why I am so confident of myself doing well in these dreams because like I run a 12 minute mile the last time I checked. <laughs> so I wouldn't I wouldn't make it in a zombie apocalypse. Um, I'm gonna slow the zombies. You just you have to be faster than the person running beside you, right? <laughs> that's true. Um, although I think most people are faster than me, because I think a lot of people probably run above a 12 minute mile. It's like a pretty. That was really just me walking around the field. Um, 
I think if there's anything else that I'm really dying for. This isn't like a specific thing, but in general, I am I'm always looking to have more diverse authors and diverse stories. Um, but when it comes to the type of stories that I'm looking for, I am looking more for stories that have diverse MCs, but that do not center around identity struggles. Um, I think that those books are important and I think there's a place for them. But on the other hand, I also think that like, you know, I don't wake up every day and wonder how what I'm doing relates to how Korean I am. Um, and I think that everyone is like that. No one is constantly grappling with identity issues or comparing every choice they make to like, you know, what their ancestors would do or what their parents want them to do. Um, so I would like to see more stories with diverse characters just being normal. Normal is not the right word. That's that's all I can think of. Um, you know, kind of like if you swapped out any other story, but just had like a diverse main character in it. Gotcha. That's not appealing to you. There has to be something beyond just, it's this story, but this time it's with. It's not that it's not appealing to me. I think that um, if I, you know, if the story was right and it was centering around identity issues in a way that felt really compelling to me, then like I, I'm definitely still interested in that. But in general, I would like to see more of the kind of other story that I described just because when I do see diverse stories, it is mostly identity focused in some way. And it's just something new that I would like to see more of. Okay, okay. Something that I go out of my way to ask just about every publishing professional I ever have the opportunity to talk to, um, uh, because I'm a, 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 a big proponent of, of more diverse books. Uh, we need them. Uh, and I know from your manuscript wish list that you're actively seeking uh, books with diverse characters. Uh, but what are you doing to increase diverse offerings within publishing? And what are you seeing other publishers doing uh, to make sure that that chart they put together every year that shows the the white characters, uh, the book starring white characters being, I think it was down to almost 60% of the market, most recent uh, graphic that I, I saw drawn of it. Um, so I know it's 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 improving, uh, but it's still not quite where we want it to be. What? Yeah, that's my question. What uh, what are you uh, seeing publishers do to increase diverse offerings, and what are you doing? Well, I think on the children's business, um, diverse books is something that is much more widely accepted in the publishing industry than it was even I don't know like five years ago. Um, you know, you see editors now saying that they're actively looking for diverse stories. Um, so. I think that in that sense, a lot more of the publishing industry is aware of the need for these books and is, if not actively hunting for them, at least open to getting them. Um, in terms of like what I'm doing, I mean, I guess just like submitting books with diverse characters. Um, Which is a big deal. <laughs> it's, it's good that you're doing it. Keep it up. Um, but I think also making an effort so of, of those small spots on my list, um, I'm making more of a conscious effort to be aware of whether or not that person is a person of color. And that's not necessarily to say that like if they're not, then like screw them. Um, but it's just something that I want to be more aware of as I continue to build my list. Um, just, you know, because. We've heard the heterosexual white male uh, has angst story before. <laughs> that that one's available. Um, like uh, you know, publishing in general, um, I think on both sides of the equation, it's like pretty white, um, and that has a lot to do, I think, with historical sort of like financial statuses and things like that. 
So, you know, for authors, authors of color who are, you know, looking to get their work published, um, for whatever reason, it might be harder for them to, you know, maybe participate in, um, in contests or critiques or whatever. And I just think being aware of that and sort of like looking out for those people is a way that you can sort of help them. Not necessarily, I guess, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm getting sort of rambly here. Um, I think that it is important as an agent and as an editor, just in general, to be more aware of sort of the clients that you're working with and how you want your list of authors to look. Um, because it's easy to say that you're for diversity, right? But if, if you're saying that and you're saying it's important to you, then you should be doing something to sort of ensure that you are contributing to that in some way, shape, or form. Makes sense to me. And then uh, what are you seeing publishers uh, doing to continue to increase those efforts? Uh, well, actually, at Macmillan tomorrow, um, POC agent panel, where we're talking about diversity issues and what we can do in the future. So I think that um, publishers are a lot more aware and they are trying to start conversations, which is really good. Um, but I think also making it more of an effort in, um, in acquisitions meetings to make sure that, you know, of the, you know, 12 titles that we're publishing this season, you know, how many of them are from you know, a diverse standpoint or an own voice of author. So I think that the awareness that's there isn't the same awareness that was not present um, several years ago. So that's definitely a good thing too. So let me ask you this, if I come to you and I want to write about, um, I don't know, I'm, uh, for those of you who are on the list and can't see me, I am indeed a heterosexual white male. Uh, I come to you and I say, I want to write a story about an autistic Chinese girl um, who's also transgender. What steps do we, is that something that's a realistic pitch that I could write that story? And if so, what what are we going to need to do to counter the narrative? Uh, yeah, the narrative that I maybe am not the person to tell that story. Well, the question to you would be why, you know, and if you have a reasonable reason um, and not just like, because I think it would be cool, then, you know, that's step one. Um, I do have authors who have written diverse characters who themselves are not diverse. Um, one of my middle grade authors, Shauna Holyoke, is white and she has a book, Kazu Jones and the Den Denver Dognappers that has a um, half Japanese character. And I love the book, I love the voice. I thought that having the characters very traditional Japanese parents just kind of like really perfectly offset who she was as a person. Um, and so, you know, we just really wanted to make sure that we were doing our due diligence and representing characters authentically. So we got sensitivity readers on board to look over the manuscript to make sure that everything we were doing was correct. Um, and, you know, the right, sort of thing for someone to say or do or act or what have you. Um, so if you are doing a project like that, and it is for a really good reason, then getting sensitivity readers on board is key, definitely. Gotcha. So get as many readers who had that experience to weigh in and, and say, yes, that's within, if not my realm of experience, I could see that as plausible at least. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that having you know, why you were writing this particular character and why, you know, to be you. Um, I would make sure to make sure that answer is something that is very comprehensive, um, that will kind of stand up to criticism because as I'm sure you can imagine, if you are a white heterosexual male writing about a, was it, um, deaf Chinese girl who's also transgender, 
I think. Yeah, no, it was the most ridiculous hypothetical I could possibly think of. You know, get ready to have some, like, people who are looking to get really angry at you or who are looking to, like, really closely examine your story and see the cracks in it. Um, so, you know, making sure beforehand that you're doing this for the right reasons and that you're also doing everything you need to do to make sure that that person is portrayed authentically is, is really important, not just for the book and the story, but for, you know, for you as well. Sure. That makes uh, complete sense. It's something that I think is getting better as we're all figuring this out together at the same time, how to fix the diversity of publishing is all a problem. Everybody that's uh, involved in publishing at any level, this is a problem impacting all of us uh, that we need to, to get together and work on. Uh, but I know in my case, I had difficulty with Banneker Bones because he is a biracial boy detective in, in a multiracial family. And I said, yes, but I'm raising such a boy. I think I can handle the book about one. And, and that is my modus operandi for wanting to write that one. Um, I had a friend whose uh, son uh, is transgender uh, and was told because you yourself are not transgender, we're concerned that the story is not going to be able to resonate with an audience. Is that something that uh, hopefully is lessening and that you're finding ways to overcome with sensitivity readers alone or what what would go into a strategy to say uh hey readers let's let's make sure that uh, the twitter's on board with this or <laughs> whoever uh, we'd be concerned about um well, i wouldn't really think about it in terms of a hurdle to overcome because i think that it is it is very valid to say that you know if you are telling the story about a transgender person then if there's someone out there who is transgender and can speak more authentically to that experience, then you know that maybe is the book that should be out there and be getting recognition. But I do think, like I said, if you have that good reason, you know, I'm doing this for my friend's son so that he can see more transgender representation, um, you know, because I really care about that. And I want him to see himself in books. And you know, to that end, I have talked with you know three different transgender sensitivity readers. Um, and, you know, the whole reason also for this character being transgender in this story is because it's about accepting yourself for who you are, and I really felt that would drive that point home. If, if you can speak, um, you know, intelligently to things like that, explaining why you're doing what you're doing and how you've taken the steps to sort of make sure that everything you're doing is, is correct and appropriate, then I think that you're fine. Um, I mean, there is honestly still a chance that some people might say, you know what, that's not for me. Um, but I mean, that's the case really with all books. There's always a chance, right? So. No, I want to write the kind of book that nobody ever complains about and everyone's happy yeah. <laughs> the moment I write it. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go back a little bit. You've mentioned uh, self-publishing. Do you work with hybrid authors? Uh, and can somebody who has previously, would you be interested in talking with someone who had previously self-published? Uh, and if so, what, what would be the extra criteria that would go into evaluating uh, such an author? Uh, I definitely there's more on the romance side, because that is more of a common thing with romance authors. Um, but I actually did sign one of my picture books, um, which is about um, the Chinese Mooncake Festival, was self-published before in Hong Kong. And then I signed the author and we sold the book to Charles Bridge. Um, so that was a case where it hadn't really been exposed to a U.S. market. So we still kind of had like a, a lot of people to sort of buy the book and whatnot. Um, but I think that if you are going to self-publish, it shouldn't be as a like, no agents are listening to me. I'm not getting responses and I want to get my book out there. So I'm just going to self-publish. That's like the worst reason that you could possibly do it. Um, 
if you are going to self-publish your project, it should be because, you know, you know, you're an expert with, you know, marketing and manipulating Amazon prices and Kindle daily deals and book clubs and all that stuff. And like, you know what to do. So you don't need to give someone, you know, however much of a percentage to do it for you. Um, you need to be able to invest a lot of time and effort into doing something like that and promoting it. And, you know, if you then come to an agent and say, you know, I've done these self-published books and now I'm looking for a traditional publisher. The first thing I'm going to do is look at your sales. And that's the same also for an editor where you're talking about whether or not book two is getting taken on um, or if a completely new book is going to be taken on by a completely new publisher. They are also going to look at your sales. So if you're doing it just kind of like as a stress relief, which is not the right word, um, just, you know, then you have to be sort of ready to deal with the consequences of if you're not doing everything you can as a self-published author to promote that book, to get that book out there, then it might come back and kind of like bite you in the butt. Um, also, a lot of the times, I think this is probably going into something different, but when people ask, you know, do I need an agent? Do I need traditional publishing? There's Amazon, there's all this other stuff out there. What I usually say to people is, you know, do you understand contract negotiation? Do you know what industry standard, you know, royalty percentages are? Do you know what kind of language you should be having in your option clause, your revision clause? Um, do you know how to license subrights? Um, you know, audio, foreign, film, what have you. Um, you know, are, do you know how to market your book, how to promote your book? Do you have contacts for all those things that you can do? What pricing should your book be for selling? Like, do you have not only that knowledge, but also all that time? Um, if that's the case, then yes, you should definitely self-publish and congratulations to you. You'll get to have 70% of your book's revenue. Um, but if not, then, you know, having an agent and having a, a traditional publisher is like a huge thing. And also not just for all of those sort of technical things they can do for you, but having someone who is your advocate and who's in your corner, but also has like a very intimate understanding of how the process works is something that is very beneficial. Um, and also, even though traditional publishers aren't necessarily putting forth a lot of marketing dollars for all of their debut authors, um, being with a traditional publisher does carry some automatic weight with it, even if you're not necessarily getting, you know, the national book tour and like the one page ad in the times. Um, so I think a lot of it comes down to deciding how much you're willing to take on for yourself and how much you're able to take on for yourself, but also like what's important to you. Makes sense. Um, and I tell you, I'm, I know we're uh, coming toward the end of our time, uh, which makes me sad. It always flies by. Uh, and I've, I've so much enjoyed picking your brain. I'm going to ask you two more questions. I'm going to call it a day. Is that sure. um, my first question is just about the future of publishing, um, incorporating a little bit of, of self-publishing, because one thing we all know, I don't, I don't think anybody knows the future exactly. And if you do, why are you focused on books? The stock market, man, go. <laughs> but um, we know it's a time of disruption because we're seeing it across all mediums. Uh, we're seeing television. Uh, upside down, the music industry upside down. Uh, I know that Barnes & Noble had gone through, what, five CEOs in less than two years. Uh, and prior to this hedge fund stepping in to buy them, uh, they were running all of their daily expenses on an um, investor-controlled fund, uh, which back in my days as a um, uh, financial advisor and a day trader, that would have been my choice to short the stock. Barnes & Noble mm -hmm. was going down. Uh, now, hopefully, the hedge fund stepped in 
they're going to make things better, rebuild it. But it does concern me when I go and I'm picking on Barnes and Noble because they're the biggest bookstore. I love you, Barnes and Noble. I was just there for Annie Sullivan's amazing uh, party. Uh, but when I go in there these days, it starts to remind me of the blockbuster video stores. Mm -hmm. uh, toward the end, uh, blockbuster, they take their their movie section and that was like now half the store, and the rest was movie posters, movie memorabilia, snacks things that people could buy beyond that. Now, when I go to Barnes and Noble to see half the stores, books, and the other half is $60 Blu-rays and toys for kids and things. Again, new hedge fund managers come in, bottom up. They're going to turn things around. Barnes and Noble is going to be okay. But knowing that whatever happens with uh, with the, the hedge fund uh, guys um, and girls, uh, whatever happens with Barnes and Noble going forward, there is going to continue to be disruption. Uh, because we're in a massive media explosion. Uh, people are going to continue to purchase e-readers, probably um, viable AR and, and VR coming online in the near future, uh, where we'll be reading our, our books virtually or we'll be holding up nothing, but we can see a, a page through our glasses. All that's coming. Um, in fact, uh, one of my running jokes is Steven Spielberg says the world of Ready Player One is going to be a reality in the next five to ten years. And so I like to imagine myself at the start of the race where they're all going to, to race the dinosaurs and do anything you can imagine. And I'm, I'm still there. Thought, Would anyone like to buy a book? <laughs> <laughs> and you do all that amazing stuff. Um, so with the disruption we know is coming, do you have some idea of what the future of publishing is going to look like and what are you doing to prepare yourself and your clients for whatever that's going to be? Um, I, mean, I don't think that anyone is certain what they think the future of publishing is specifically going to look like. I think it's obvious, as you said, that there's a lot of change happening. Um, maybe I'm not being alarmist enough about it, but I, I think that honestly, whatever happens, we'll just kind of see it as it comes. Um, you know, like you said, Blockbuster used to be a thing, sort of borders. Um, and you know, CDs and wall bands, but the music industry is still around, you know, the movie industry is still around, the book industry is still around. I think that, you know, the formats might change, but I think the way that we sort of consume books, um, the kind of stories that we're interested in, like, I, I don't think that that will vary as strongly. And I think we've already seen, um, right, there's a huge rise in audiobooks. Um, before publishers, used to, or publishers, I'm um, sorry, agents used to not even really think about giving publishers audio rights because like, what would you do with audio rights? It's like a small little thing. And, you know, now we're like dying to hold on to them because audiobooks have just skyrocketed. Um, and so that's obviously a change in the way people are consuming stories. But I'm assuming that the people <clears throat> who are choosing audiobooks, maybe over physical books or even eBooks are still maybe reading within their favorite genres. They're still buying, you know, all the YA fantasies that they love or the cozy mysteries. They're just consuming them in a different way. Um, I also remember, was I an assistant writer's house or an intern? I can't remember. I remember, um, you know, when ebooks first started being a thing and people were freaking out because what were we going to do about that? You know, you weren't going to have a physical book anymore. What would the royalty percentage be? Um, you know, Apple was going to kill us all. But, you know, it was fine. And I think, I don't know, it almost kind of feels like a Y2K kind of situation where people are like, the future of publishing, it'll be fine. Um, so I guess the second part of your question, as you can probably tell, is I'm not really preparing my authors for very much. Um, but I think I'm just trying to sort of stay aware of, of those trends in the marketplace, right? Like sort of stay on top of the fact that, you know, audio is really doing really well. Like what's going on? I mean, in, in the same way that agents are paying attention to sort of any kind of fluctuations or changes within the industry. 
Oh, that makes sense. And I, I 100% agree with you. I, I don't want to be an alarmist. People are still going to read. Uh, it's been popular forever, even in the virtual world, where it's, all right, Mr. Dinosaur, take a break. I'm going to read the rest of this new book, and then maybe we'll do another race. <laughs> Although, I don't know, if you are going to be in a Ready Player One type of situation, I think maybe book sales might drop off at end, because that's going to be pretty crazy. Um, but have you actually, have you ever heard of uh, simulation theory? Oh, sure. Okay. My husband explained this to me fairly recently. I still do not understand it. It's like, I don't know, if, if we're already in a simulation, first of all, if it's being run by aliens, why? Why do they care about having us pretend that we're living in these normal lives? And how would you be able to tell just because we would have the, like, the technology to do it? Why would having the technology to do it in the future mean that it would be happening right now? Well, I know I heard this explained uh, recently. I'm going to try and pretend that I was listening to something hybrid. I wasn't. I was listening to the Joe Rogan experience because it's great. <laughs> okay, there you go. We probably heard the same guy. Uh, and I'm not smart enough to explain it the way he did. Uh, but the idea is that once the technology becomes available and you take a look at all possible realities that could exist because you can make a simulation, the odds of being in a simulation are far more probable than the odds of being in the original reality that's on the way to making a simulation. I still don't understand how they get to that, like being a more logical. Anyway, I know that that's not exactly what, what we're supposed to be discussing here. Um, we can talk about anything you want. <laughs> it is something that's, uh, especially since um, my, my religious faith um, has wandered away from formal uh, religion. Um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not on board team atheist yet because the world's just too weird. But I'm also not convinced anybody has all the answers. Simulation theory has really appealed to me because, oh, that explains things. They're not aliens. That's part of the program. Fine. (laughs) I hate it. I think it comes down to maybe being a little bit of like a control freak when it comes to my personal life. Because, I, yeah, no, as soon as John was saying that, I was like, no, I'm feeling that. That's actually my arm. That's my fingers touching my arm. And I feel it because it's my arm, not because, like, you know, I'm in the Matrix. And that's what this is. Simulation. How would you know? I would look for glitches. Well, I guess, and also speaking of, you know, like having religion or faith, I guess the way that we'll actually know is when we die, right? Then we'll know if we're actually in the simulation theory or not. Because if you're rebooted, then there you go. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's the most optimistic to me uh, thought is that you die and you're like, ah, oh, wait, I respawned. Now I can do something else. Great. Why does this all look so familiar? But it also, sometimes when I'm feeling uh, really, uh, oh, what's the word? Not nice. Um, I, I can't think of the, the right word. Cynical, I guess. Um, got a little got a little New Yorker in me. Um, feel a little bit cynical. And I think that of all the people that are so convinced that their religion is the one true one and they have all the answers. And if there really is nothing beyond this, you just, you die, the lights go out and you don't even know you ever existed. Those people never know they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we have to do something. <laughs> Uh, okay. And then, uh, <laughs> Carrie, who, who may or may not be a simulated entity, I, I'm very much enjoyed this conversation. Um, my last question for you to catch all the things that I could have and should have asked you about, but didn't because I was too busy asking you about ancient aliens and simulation theory. Uh, this is kind of my catch all. If there's anything I missed, here's the, the spot to catch it. Um, if there was one or two pieces of advice that you could impart to every would-be writer or publishing professional listing uh, and that they would take that as gospel and go and do, what would you tell them to do? 
Well, okay. I think I'd probably tell them to take marketing as seriously as they take writing. Because um, writing, just you know, by nature, is a very sort of isolated thing, I think it's very easy to sort of get a little bit of tunnel vision. And obviously having a really fantastically written manuscript and a really like original wonderful story is very important. But equally important is sort of laying the groundwork when it comes to social media and marketing and all that, because that's a huge part of what being an author is nowadays. nowadays. And that's why I also say, you know, it's a, it's a brand. You know, you're not yourself writing a book. You're not Charles Dickens sending your manuscript off to your publisher and then just sitting back and watching the royalty stumble in. You have to sort of actively fight for people's um, for people to notice you, for people's attention. Uh, so I think that sort of getting yourself ready, learning as much as you can about that sort of stuff, being as active as you can is is just as important as having that really fantastic product. Um, number two, I think, would probably be. This isn't really advice. This is just more of like a, an ideal mindset to be willing to sort of sort of slash your book to pieces and be willing to be commercial. So it's your writing is obviously art. It's an art form, literary criticism. There's this whole thing about it. And it's something that's very personal. But at the same time, you're not writing this book for your own benefit. Right. Or to be published in some sort of like um critical debate journal for literary criticism. Um, you're publishing it through a trade publisher. So you're publishing a commercial product to be consumed by the general public. So being willing to be less precious about your manuscripts is something that I think is really important. I think sometimes people get really mired down and sort of remembering like, you know, I have to have this put in because when I first started writing, I always said I would have a book about this. Or, you know, this is, a, this is like symbolic of my relationship with my mother. Those are all like, really nice things and things that I can understand are important to you. But if it's not benefiting the book as a commercial product, it's it would be nice if you would be able to let go of that as opposed to holding on to it. So I guess, I mean, it kind of boils down to my same, the same advice in terms of like, you know, being a writer and being a marketer. Be a writer and also be able to be, or be, be an artist, I guess, and also be able to be a business person in, in the same breath. Um, I think that I think that a lot of the authors that I see who are really successful are authors who understand both of those things, that marketing is just as important as writing, and that what they are putting forth at the end of the day, even though it's created through a very personal process and is a work of art, is also a commercial product, which sounds cynical, but I'm actually not trying to be cynical with that. I am saying like a lot of other things. Um, that's just something that I see a lot of authors getting tripped up on, and I think it does them a disservice. That's that uh, great ever never ending debate of commerce versus art. Um, and uh, if you figure out where the exact ratio is that, that that makes everybody perfectly happy from the artist to the publisher, by God, let me <laughs> let me know. <laughs> but there's usually some kind of tension there one way or the other. Um, but you're you're right. Obviously, it's a product to be consumed. And that's what you want. You want you want esteemed reader to be happy. And if you don't, why are you publishing? But Emily Dickens put everything in your little journal and put it in a, a trunk, and then when you exit the simulation, somebody will find it, we'll all enjoy it. <laughs> Carrie, thank you so much for for, make, for being so generous with your time this afternoon. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation, and one I know I'm going to go back and I'm going to listen to uh, frequently because we talked about a lot of great stuff. <laughs> I'm going to go back and enjoy again. Uh, where can esteemed audience find you online and, and get in touch with you? Um, well, we're on the LDLA website, on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is literarycarry. 
and so is my blog. I did not pay for a domain name, so it's literarycarry.wixsite.com slash blog. <laughs> Perfect, and I will link to it in the show notes, so if you're uh, wherever you're listening to this esteemed audience, just go down there. I've got it uh, ready to click on for you. Uh, and then pe- can people follow you on Twitter? Mm-hmm. Yep. Twitter is Literary Gary. Um, oh, and also Goodreads. But I don't know how, I think you just look up my name on Goodreads. I don't think that there's like a specific handle for it. Um, but yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed doing this too. This was a lot of fun. Um, I'll tell you what, when I come up with a new set of questions someday, we'll have to do it again. I'll listen to four more episodes of Joe Rogan and then I'll have all kinds of stuff to ask you about. Uh, Carrie, I've been uh, asking our guest to sign us off with the totally justifies the name of the show, extremely ninja-like sign-off phrase, hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Hi-ya. Hi-ya. Perfect. And that's it.